the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Today we're going to talk with Steve Sterling. He is... Um, the author of The Crutch of Success, From Polio to Purpose, Bringing Health and Hope to the World. We'll also talk in the 5 o'clock hour with Michelle Malkin. Her latest book, Open Borders, Inc., Who's Funding America's Destruction? She's going to be here in the Portland area tomorrow night. And uh, we're hoping you will join us. We'll give you all the important details when she joins us later in the next hour of today's program. We're also going to talk about what impeachment looks like, what the requirements are. Is it like being in a court of law and so on If uh, as the Democrats move forward in the House toward their impeachment efforts? Well, taking a look at some of the headlines, President Trump on Sunday said he wants to meet the whistleblower who filed a complaint about his July phone call with the Ukrainian president and have the uh, uh, to have House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff questioned for fraud and treason. Likely every American, I deserve to meet my accuser, especially when the accuser, the so-called whistleblower, represented a perfect conversation with a foreign leader in a totally inaccurate and fraudulent way, the president tweeted. Then Schiff made up what I actually said by lying to Congress. Well, the president last week released a transcript of the call with President uh, Zelensky, which, along with the complaint, detailed how he asked his Ukrainian counterpart to investigate Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden and his son Hunter. The incident has set off a formal impeachment inquiry from House Democrats, but... Representative Schiff opened Thursday's hearings on Capitol Hill with acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, with an exaggerated reading of the phone call, which he later walked back as a parody. The president on Friday blasted Schiff for the fictional summary and demanded his immediate resignation. Appearing on ABC News this week, Schiff said that precautions have been taken to protect the whistleblower's identity amid criticism from the president and his allies. The whistleblower is reportedly a member of the CIA and, according to Schiff, could testify before House lawmakers soon. That has since been confirmed. Joe Biden's presidential campaign requested in a letter on Sunday that major news networks not invite President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, anymore. After Giuliani spent the morning on a series of talk shows aggressively highlighting what he called Biden's apparent corrupt dealings in Ukraine and China. The Biden campaign wrote to NBC News, CBS News, Fox News and CNN to voice grave concern that you continue to book Rudy Giuliani on your air to spread false debunked conspiracy theories on behalf of Donald Trump in quote, according to the Daily Beast, which first reported the existence of the letter. Meanwhile, Fox News Sunday anchor Chris Wallace reported that Giuliani was not the only attorney trying to get damaging information on Biden from Ukrainian officials. And Trump's decision to withhold aid from Ukraine this summer was made in spite of several federal agencies supporting the aid. Washington, D.C. lawyers Joe D. Genova and his wife, Victoria Tunzing, 
uh, worked alongside the former New York City mayor. According to a top U.S. official, the three attorneys were working off the books, not within the Trump administration, and only the president knows the details of their work. Tunzing uh, denied the allegations in a tweet. Giuliani denied working with other attorneys in an interview with Maria Bartiromo on Sunday morning futures. Wallace responded, we stand by our story. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told CBS News 60 Minutes on Sunday that despite her previous hesitation to launch impeachment proceedings against President Trump, Democrats are now ready to impeach the commander in chief if necessary. We could not ignore what the president did. He gave us no choice. Uh, So it wasn't any change of mind. I always said we will follow the facts where they take us. And when we see them, we will be ready and we are ready. Interestingly, she she announced the impeachment inquiry before the facts were known. After a weekend of talks, there's still no contract. The strike with UAW workers against General Motors continues into three third week. Uh, Talks are expected to resume uh, and did this morning, which is the 15th day of the strike. The parties worked all weekend addressing the complex issues before them, but have not reached a tentative agreement yet. Negotiations will resume first thing. Uh, We will continue to look for solutions to reach agreement. UAW said on Sunday, striking employees can begin collecting $250 a week in strike pay that breaks down to $50 per weekday. That comes to $6.25 an hour, below the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour. Three of the four inmates who escaped from a southeast Ohio jail after overpowering guards have been captured in North Carolina. It's been reported, according to a spokeswoman, uh, from the town of of Cary, North Carolina, the local police department got a call around 2 a.m. saying that the four fugitives were uh, pinged in the area. According to the uh, local media, jail records show that Christopher Clement, Brian Martin, Troy McDaniel were booked into the Wake County, North Carolina jail. Lawrence Lee remained at loose, on the loose rather. He has since been captured. Peter Schweitzer, author of Secret Empires, breaks down the timeline of um, the, the two Chairman uh, Adam Schiff announced on Sunday that the whistleblower who filed a complaint regarding the president's call with Ukrainian president has agreed to testify before the committee, adding that it will likely happen very soon. Uh, News of the arrangement came two days after the secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, was subpoenaed. Meanwhile, the president on Sunday fumed like every American. I deserve to meet my accuser. Well, the Trump administration is investigating the email records of dozens of current and former senior State Department officials who sent messages to then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's private email. Those targeted were notified that emails they sent years ago have been retroactively classified and now constitute potential security violations, according to letters reviewed by The Washington Post. In virtually all of the cases, potentially sensitive information now recategorized as classified was sent to Clinton's unsecure Inbox. A federal judge in California ruled on Friday against the Trump administration's plan to detain illegal immigrant families longer than 20 days, undercutting the president's attempt to close the chief loophole that caused this year's border surge. Judge Dolly Gee, an Obama appointee, has long been a stumbling block for Homeland Security and its immigration plans, and the ruling was expected. The administration is likely to quickly appeal. Federal authorities on Friday charged more than 30 individuals in connection with an alleged Medicare fraud scheme that took as much as $2 billion out of the pockets of taxpayers before it was detected. The scheme revolved around tricking seniors into getting their checks uh, or rather their cheeks swabbed for unnecessary DNA tests that would uh, supposedly tell them whether or not they were genetically predisposed to serious diseases, including cancer. The defendants would then uh, charge Medicare for the swabs. In total, they were 
uh, are alleged to have collected $2 billion in reimbursements with a typical bill running about $7,000 and $12,000. And Democrats are headed back to court to challenge the validity of North Carolina's 13 congressional districts just weeks after the state's highest course, ru- court rather ruled that the Republican-controlled legislature unconstitutionally gerrymandered state-level maps. A new lawsuit filed on Friday on behalf of 14 North Carolina voters challenges Republican-drawn maps that first went into effect ahead of the 2016 elections after a court threw out a previous set of maps that were drawn after the 2010 census. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, working our way through some of the news headlines of the day. Also coming up, we'll talk with Steve Sterling, author of The Crutch of Success, From Polio to Purpose, Bringing Health and Hope to the World. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this Monday afternoon, working our way through some of the news stories. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Steve Sterling, the crutch of success from polio to purpose, bringing health and hope to the world. A remarkable story. And he'll share that with us next segment. Well, writing in Psychology Today, Tyler Vanderweel says, and I quote, In 2015, a paper by Gene Decady and co-authors reported that children who were brought up religiously were less generous. The paper received a great deal of attention, as it turned out, however. The paper by Decady was wrong. Upon reanalysis, social psychologist Azim Sharif discovered that the results were due to a coding error. Well, in the Washington Examiner, Madeline Fry responds, It was clear all along that something was not right with the paper. Some news outlets, though, still haven't changed their reporting. The Science Journal made the very belated uh, right call to formally retract the article. But it's also important that those who disseminate it correct the widely shared and false findings. Well, the outlet that published the results of the paper ought to, be, ought to update their articles, even if that's painful for their confirmation bias. Well, here's a horror story uh, that you're probably not going to see on CNN anytime soon. A report emerged on Thursday indicating that the puberty-blocking drug um, luprolide acetate, or Lupron, uh, has resulted in tens of thousands of serious adverse reactions in patients, including more than 6,000 deaths. That's bad enough, but it's even more significant when you consider that this is one of the drugs being administered by doctors to so-called transgender children to unnaturally prevent their normal sexual development. And the testing done on the drug by the FDA for such applications appears to be thin at best. The craziness in New York City continues unabated. In the municipal government's endless war against the insufficiently woke, a new weapon has been added to the social justice warriors' arsenal. The City Hall Commission on Human Rights has now issued an edict saying that it will henceforth be illegal to use the phrase illegal alien if it's detected, uh, rather directed at someone in a way that is motivated by hate. And of course, they'll decide what the motivation is. You'll also be in violation of the law if you threaten to call immigrants immigration enforcement on an illegal alien. Hmm. One week after summer's end, a winter storm began blasting parts of the West with up to three feet of snow, smashing records with low temperatures, heavy snow, strong winds and blizzard conditions forecast into Monday. USA Today reported, on the other hand, temperatures will soar to 10 to 25 degrees above average through much of this week across the deep south and into Ohio Valley. Mid-Atlantic and Northeast, according to the Weather Channel. For those wondering about the implications of global warming, keep in mind that extreme weather, both on the hot and cold variety, 
has been and always will be, well, a way of finding equilibrium that nature has. Well, on this day, September 30th, 1777, the Continental Congress, forced to flee in the face of advancing British forces, moved to York, Pennsylvania. On this day in 1846, Boston dentist William Morton uses ether as an anesthetic for the first time as he extracts an ulcerated tooth from merchant Eben Frost. Oh, can you imagine having it done without ether? On this day in 1939, the first college football game to be televised is shown on experimental station W2XBS in New York as Fordham University defeats Waynesburg College. The score, 34 to 7. On this day in 1954, the first nuclear-powered submarine, the USS Nautilus, is commissioned by the U.S. Navy. And also on this day in 1962, James Meredith, the black student, is escorted by federal marshals to the campus of the University of Mississippi, where he would enroll for classes the next day. Meredith's presence sparks rioting that claims two lives. On this day in 1972, Roberto Clemente hits a double against uh, John Matlack of the New York Mets during Pittsburgh's 5-0 victory at Three Rivers Stadium. The hit is the 3,000th and last for the Pirates star as he would die in a plane crash three months later. On this day in 2001, under threat of U.S. military strikes, Afghanistan's hardline Taliban ruler said explicitly for the first time that Osama bin Laden is still in the country and that they know where he's, his hideout is located. And finally, on this day in 2014, the first case of Ebola diagnosed in the U.S. is confirmed in a patient who had recently traveled from Libya to Dallas. Well, Republicans today challenged intelligence community officials to explain why a key whistleblower, a form, was apparently changed to drop the requirement for firsthand information, questioning whether the timing was related to the explosive complaint on President Trump's call with a leader to uh, leader of Ukraine. Well, as it turns out, it wasn't time for that. It was sometime last year. The anonymous complaint, which spurred congressional Democrats to launch an impeachment inquiry last week, was based on secondhand accounts from more than half a dozen U.S. officials, in quotes. It alleged that the president sought an investigation from Ukraine into Biden's family, something the now public transcript of the call with President um, Zelensky confirms. And it included a variety of other disputed allegations, including that officials moved to lockdown records of the call. But in a detail first reported by the Federalist, a key form was recently revised to drop a requirement that such complaints include firsthand information in order to be sent to Congress. In a letter, uh, Republicans urged Intelligence Committee Inspector General Michael Atkinson to preserve all records related to that revision, allegedly made sometime in August. Specifically, they requested um, whether the timing was related to the U.N., uh, I should say, the Ukrainian complaint. Rudy Giuliani was not the only attorney trying to get damaging information on Joe Biden from Ukrainian officials. And President Trump's decision to withhold aid from Ukraine this summer was made in spite of several federal agencies supporting the aid. That's what Chris Wallace revealed in an interview on Fox News Sunday. In addition to Giuliani, Washington, D.C. lawyers, Joe D. Genova and his wife, uh, Victoria Tunzing, worked alongside the former New York City mayor, according to a top U.S. official. In a tweet on Sunday, Tunzing denied that her husband and she were working with Giuliani and called the reporting categorically false. Wallace later responded, we stand by our story. When asked by uh, the Fox Business Network's Maria Bartiromo if he was working with other attorneys to get information about Biden, Giuliani denied it as well. No, I didn't work with anybody to try to get dirt on Joe Biden, Giuliani said on Sunday Morning Futures, claiming the information was handed to him rather than sought out. A whistleblower complaint citing multiple U.S. government officials accused Trump of preserving 
or rather pressuring Ukraine to investigate Biden in a July 25th phone call. And the chairman of three House uh, co- uh, committees subpoenaed President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, on Monday for key documents related to the Ukraine controversy as part of their formal impeachment inquiry against the president. Pursuant to the House of Representatives impeachment inquiry, we are hereby transmitting a subpoena that compels you to produce the documents set forth in the accompanying schedule by October 15, 2019, end quote. Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Elliot Engel and Oversight Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings, all Democrats, wrote. Giuliani, the former New York City mayor, played a key role in seeking information from Ukrainian officials on former President Joe Biden's dealings with the country, along with those of his son, Hunter. The committee chairs subpoenaed Giuliani after claiming he admitted to being in possession of evidence in the form of text messages, phone records and other communication, indicating that you were not acting alone and that other Trump administration officials may have been involved in the scheme, end quote. Well, I mentioned already uh, the denial on the part of he and two other attorneys. The subpoena for Giuliani came as the committees have investigated the president's controversial phone call with the Ukrainian president. Now, whether or not he has the privilege, the attorney client privilege that would prevent him uh, from being free to discuss details remains to be seen, given the fact that he is the president's personal attorney. Uh, That story is developing. But what we do know is that the uh, uh, president's attorney has been subpoenaed rather by the House Democrats for the Ukraine documents related to this impeachment inquiry. Kurt Volker, the U.S. envoy for Ukraine, resigned on Friday after his name was mentioned in the intelligence community whistleblower's complaint regarding the president's phone call with the Ukrainian president that included discussion about investigation of the Biden family. Volker's resignation was first reported by the state press, the student newspaper of Arizona State University, where Volker serves as executive director of the school's McCain Institute. Well, according to the complaint, Volker sought to contain the damage from Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani's outreach to Ukraine's um, government about the Biden family. But a July 19th text message from Volker to Giuliani that was provided to media on Thursday showed that Volker had, in fact, encouraged Giuliani to reach out to Ukraine. As discussed, connecting you here with Andre Yermak, who is a very uh, who is very close to President Zelensky. The message from Volker to Giuliani read in part, I suggest we schedule a call together on Monday, July 22nd. End quote. Well, the White House on Wednesday released a transcript of that uh, July phone call, which showed the president sought to review the Biden family dealing in the country. There's a lot of talk about Biden's son, that Biden stopped the prosecution, and a lot of people want to find out about that. So whatever you can do with the attorney general would be great, Trump said in the phone call. Biden went around bragging that he stopped the prosecution. So if you can uh, look into it, it sounds horrible to me. Well, Joe Biden has said that while vice president, he urged Ukraine to fire its then top prosecutor, Victor Shokin, who was investigating the natural gas firm uh, that his son was being paid by, where Hunter Biden was on the board. Biden has maintained that corruption concerns prompted his investigate his intervention. Uh, interestingly, there was a discussion on The Five on Fox News earlier in the day, pointing out who those board members were and who was responsible for making the decision about the prosecutor and who originated the idea that the prosecutor was corrupt. And there are some uh, interesting facts uh, in that um lineup of individuals who have connections with the uh, uh, Democrats here in the U.S. Anyway, the, the whistleblower report ignited new calls from Democrats to impeach the president. Uh, but if uh, further investigation goes into who those individuals were and whether or not the prosecutor 
was corrupt, as uh, the president would like um, attention to be focused on the Biden family, the role the vice president played and his son in all of this. It could be damaging to the former vice president's uh, effort to become his party's nominee. Well, on Friday, the chairs of three House committees informed the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, that Volcker is scheduled to give a deposition to them on the 3rd of uh, October, which is Thursday. It wasn't immediately clear whether Volcker's departure from the State Department post affected those plans. All right. uh, We've got Steve Sterling coming up here in just a few moments. He is currently the CEO of an organization that ministers to those who desperately need medical attention. His book tells his story, The Crutch of Success, From Polio to Purpose, Bringing Health and Hope to the World. He was born in South Korea, was adopted after being abandoned by his family because they were unable to provide for him with his disability. And uh, where he came from at the time of his um, uh, abandonment, uh, there was not much available for those who are disabled. He was unable to walk and literally had to uh, crawl across the floor to get from one place to another. It's a touching story. And he now oversees uh, MAP, a medical ministry that provides uh, tremendous uh, medical resources uh, to those who are in need of uh, of help. And he believes that God has used his circumstances to equip him to provide a voice for those who cannot speak for themselves and are um, themselves disabled in countries around the world. We'll talk with uh, Steve Sterling in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, my next guest, Steve Sterling, was a child. It seemed very unlikely that he would change the world. As a one-year-old, he contracted polio. His father brought the virus home unknowingly and realizing he wasn't able to take care of his disabled son, he left, and he left his son and his daughter at an orphanage. Well, four years later, he was adopted by an American couple. He earned degrees at Cornell and Northwestern Universities, joined the corporate world. He discovered Christ, then joined the nonprofit world, where he, uh, his experience led him to change the lives of hundreds of thousands of children around the world. His book is titled The Crutch of Success, From Polio to Purpose, Bringing Health and Hope to the World. And it follows his remarkable journey from a disabled orphan in Korea to a purposeful life spent spreading health and hope all around the world. He believes he was called to be the voice of millions of children who desperately need life-changing medicines. And he also argues that God has given him experiences, even polio, to prepare him to be used. One day in heaven, he's going to walk and run again, but for now, God has purpose. Well, Steve Sterling is executive director and president and CEO of Medical Assistance Programs International, or MAP, a faith-based nonprofit providing essential medicines for mission clinics and hospitals in developing countries around the world. Since 1954, MAP has served billions of people with medicines and medical supplies through the help of partners, donors, mission hospitals, clinics, and medical mission teams. Again, he joins us today to talk about his book, The Crutch of Success, From Polio to Purpose, Bringing Health and Hope to the World. Steve Sterling, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Georgine, for having me on your show. I really appreciate you. Now, my understanding is when you were born, you were a perfectly healthy little boy, but things changed. Explain how you contracted polio and the impact that it had on, on your life moving forward. Uh, I, I was uh, very healthy, and uh, I was the uh, oldest son, the first son in my family in, the, in Korea, especially in those days. And even now, the firstborn son is so important because it carries on the family name. 
And so when I was one, my father uh, went to a funeral of a, a friend, and the child had died, but he didn't know what the child had died from. Later on, he found out it was polio. And so when he came home, he passed the virus on to me, and he was so devastated because he felt personally responsible mm. for passing the virus on to me. And Literally, that changed my whole path because um, I couldn't walk, and they tried to take me to uh, Eastern doctors and try all the kind of um, get me to walk. But they realized when I was five, I still couldn't walk. Uh, that they could not take care of me. So it really changed the whole trajectory uh, of, of our lives and uh, my parents' life too. Yeah, absolutely. Now, for generations here in the 21st century, particularly younger people. Polio doesn't strike fear in their hearts like it did their grandparents and great-grandparents. Can you explain a little bit, for those who are unfamiliar with polio, how devastating, particularly back then, uh, polio um, had been and why it was so feared? It was uh, during the uh, 30s when you know, the FDR uh, had polio, and it, it was a very, very dreaded uh, disease because in the 40s and the 50s, until the polio vaccine came out, it was much worse than anything that t- ever hit America. And because you never, it was so, you don't know where you're going to get it. And be healthy one moment, and then the virus hits you, and literally, you could be in an iron lung, and you could come out of it. Most of the time, you did not, and a lot of people actually passed away. So it was very fearful. They would quarantine people. They even thought they had polio. Public places, you cannot go into swimming pools. And so it was very, very fearful. And during that time, because literally, uh, if you didn't uh, die, you would be most likely paralyzed, uh, either one leg, two, or both, or arm. And in the worst case scenario was uh, you were actually in an iron lung because you could not even breathe. So they had to have a mechanical uh, device to help you breathe. And so uh, and it, it happened. Uh, it was not that long ago, if you look at about 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, still, around the world, uh, there's still polio uh, in uh, uh, Afghanistan and in Pakistan. And so it is a very, very viral, it's very strong um, uh, virus. So until you eradicate it from the face of the earth, you could come back, particularly if people aren't vaccinated against polio. Now, you are officially disabled by polio at the time that your parents came to the conclusion that they were unable to care for you and you were placed in an orphanage. Uh, At that time, it it was probably very difficult for you to even imagine uh, that you would have a prosperous and productive life, let alone... Uh, be in a position where you would have uh, such a uh, an impact on so many lives. How did the challenges that you had to overcome uh, factor into um, ultimately your coming to faith? Yeah. When I uh, was dropped off, uh, I found out later because we found uh, my current family in 1991, that they were afraid that if I had parents, then they would not accept me. So my father actually abandoned me. He told me to cry and, and somebody would get me. And I, I cried and sure enough, somebody got me. But then I would crawl back because I didn't have crutches or a wheelchair. I was mm. five years old. And I would crawl back to where he dropped me off. And I did that for like two weeks. And then two weeks later, uh, some, a relative brought my sister, a uh, biological sister, Mary Ellen. She and I were adopted together. And so it, it was a very, very fractal time because at least up to the time I was five, I was loved by my family. And then all of a sudden be abandoned and with children and no adults to really love you and care for you and hug you. I, I would start to cry out to God. First, I was angry. And then I would turn to God, help me. Help me one day get, uh, get me a family. Help me to help me so I would at least be, have a family to, to love and to, I didn't even know what walking meant because I never walked. And then God answered those prayers because in uh, 1964, my parents, my mom's still living, Lynn Sterling, they went to Korea to pick up another sibling that's not related to me biologically. Uh, and so when they were, uh, were leaving, they were passing a candy 
to the kids that were left behind. And my sister, Mary Ellen, was there, so she took the candy and she ran out. And so they asked the opening worker, why did she run off that way? Doesn't she like us? And they said, no, she has a handicapped brother, and they're taking him candy first. Mm. And so they were so touched by that, they said, oh, we need to see, meet her, her brother, too. And so they went to the back of the orphanage where kids who were disabled were kept. And then they saw uh, me and, and said, oh, we need to adopt both of them, uh, the kids. And we were by far the most unadoptable uh, sibling because there are three things that are struck against you. One is if you're older, and both of my sister and I were older, if you're a sibling, and if you're handicapped, and I was handicapped. So... It was uh, it was a really a miracle and answer to prayer when uh, my parents adopted my sis- my sister and I together. Mm. Even though they were actually coming for someone else altogether, that's a, that yes, is amazing, uh, right? And so, and that in those days they actually had a law that you cannot bring over more than two children from the developing country. So they actually worked with the congressman. Uh, in Alaska, they they moved from uh, Pasadena to California to Anchorage, Alaska. So they spent two years working with the congressman. And when they put uh, my uh, a rider on a bill, and President Johnson signed it in uh, 1966 in August, that's when we could come over. And it was a it was a joyous day because we were anticipation that my parents said, you know, don't worry, we're going to be our kids. And when we, uh, well, it'll take some time. And those two years were in such a grand anticipation to come to America. Oh, two-year wait. When yeah. you arrived in America and had access to the medical system here and um, perhaps a more hopeful future, what was your upbringing life like? And at what point did you begin to see the possibility that your life could reach others uh, in in ways that you could not have imagined as a youngster? Well, uh, one of the biggest a change was uh, in Korea, I was physically abused by able kids because I was the only handicapped kid going to regular school. And every day they would physically uh, abuse me uh, and verbally abuse me. So when I came to the United States, uh, maybe because I'm Korean, maybe they thought I was Eskimo. Or I'm not sure, but kids were nice to me. Because that was one big change. Kids were nice to me, and uh, and it was a really just a wonderful uh, place to go to school. Uh, and then I didn't really know. Uh, I know that I wanted to do please my parents because I didn't want them to be disappointed. They adopted uh, an older child, a handicapped child. So I really worked really hard. And my what was driving me was uh, at first. I I wanted to show that I was good as anybody else. But then later, I want to show that I was better than other people. But that's also very uh, damaging because you're always trying to do mm-hmm. uh, yourself and, you know, keep on keep on doing better and better because you want to sort of show off. And that was that had some detrimental side effects that I talk about in my book, particularly when you get married. And, you know, before I found Christ, uh, I could never say I was wrong. And so it was very challenging, especially for my wife uh, before we accepted the Lord. Now we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Steve Sterling. He is the author of The Crutch of Success, From Polio to Purpose, Bringing Health and Hope to the World. He is Executive Director, President, and CEO of Medical Assistance Programs International. It's a faith-based nonprofit providing essential medicines for mission clinics and hospitals in developing countries. And they have literally served billions of people with, uh, uh, with their care. Quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Steve Sterling. He's the author of The Crutch of Success, From Polio to Purpose, Bringing Health and Hope to the World, an extremely bright man. Uh, he held uh, careers in business and then nonprofits. But what made the difference in his uh, his journey? At what point did you um, find faith in Christ? You mentioned that you had married and uh, your stubbornness, if I can use the word, in admitting that you were wrong in your quest to uh, to please others and to excel um, made life somewhat difficult for you. At what point and how did you come to faith in Christ? Because I was not a Buddhist or Muslim, so I thought I was a Christian. Um, but then it was all based on works. So um, it was just to prove myself and just to show that I, I was you know, better. And, and so when, we, when our son was born, we were so thankful that he was healthy and just so thankful to God that um, so we and there's a goes into my book about it's really how God used my wife and a vision. So by that, 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 but you have to read the book. But basically, what happened was when the pastor asked us uh, if you want to get baptized, my wife and I we raised our hand. So, but he took the time to come to our house in Evansville, Indiana. His name was Pastor David Meenagle, and he asked us came to our house. And so, uh, do you do you believe in God? I said yes. Uh, if you die tomorrow, where would you go? And I said, well, I I think I'll go to heaven. He goes, why? Because I'm very good person. Uh, I tried my best, and I don't make mistakes so often, and I'm a good person. And he said, well, would you, do you believe God is holy? I said, yes. Well, you think you are. I said, well, I'm a very good person. So then he said, would you like to know for sure? And I said, sure I would. So then he shared with us Romans uh, 3.23 and 6.23 and Ephesians 2.89, that he disgraced by, uh, by faith, not a worse than looking boast. So my wife accepts Jesus as Lord and Savior, but I only accept him as my Savior because I want to go to heaven. But I do not accept him as my Lord because I did not want anybody to tell me what to do. Because I had a 10-year plan I used to carry in my wallet. So the next seven years, I gave my wife a really, really bad time because she accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. Her life changed, but my life did not. Mm. And so I used to make fun of her, and she said, let's go to church. I'd say, well, we went last Sunday. Oh, what I want to go to church this Sunday. So finally, she was about to give up. She said, Lord, if you want to change Steve, you change him. So within a week, I was at a Promise Keeper event in 1994, June, in Indianapolis. And the pastor comes and he speaks. And he says, the worst sin in your life. I'm thinking, what is your worst sin in your life? Axe murderer? He said, the worst sin in your life is your pride, because your pride steals God's glory. All of a sudden, he's talking to me. And I see my life pass before me. So why was I the only handicapped kid to be adopted from the orphanage? We're a loving family. My parents could not afford to send me to a good university. So I ended up going to Cornell, Northwestern. I married a wonderful woman who, who we, by the way, we never dated. She had many people ask her to marry her, and she says no. When I asked her on the phone to marry her, she says yes. Mm-hmm. I have two wonderful kids, a great job. I realized God was answering every one of my prayers when I cried out to him. But I was taking credit for all that instead of giving the glory to God. And that's when I said, Lord, forgive me for stealing your glory. And uh, June 1994 is when I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Mm. You uh, were very successful. Uh, you had a marketing career, uh, but you decided to work for nonprofit organizations. What made the difference for you in terms of leaving a career that you were very good at and successful in to work for nonprofits? You know, I, I didn't, we never had a plan to do that. I'm not to share your story. When uh, we went, my wife and I went to back to Korea, and just went in about 2000, and uh the founder's wife, Bertha Holt, passed away. By the way, uh, Holt International is out of uh, Eugene, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went to the funeral of Bertha Holt, and there I uh, met my one of my childhood friends. His name is Chung Soo. 
he had severe cerebral palsy, and he could barely uh, feed himself, but he was happy. You could see him smiling. He had an electric wheelchair to get around. So I thought, well, since he's smiling at me, I thought he was my friend. So I said, uh, Kim Su, do you remember me? And my current name is Myung Su. He said, yes, I remember you. I said, what do you remember me about? He said, well, you used to beat me up all the time. And I felt really bad because, you know, as I was telling you, uh, when I went through the school, I was the only handicapped kid, and kids would constantly pick on me. So when I came back in frustration, I would line up all the handicapped kids, and I, I would literally thrash them and just, you know, beat on this guy and get him and protect himself. So I felt really bad. So I said, uh, Kyung Soo, would you forgive me for what I did to you growing up? And he looked me right in the eye. He said, Myung Soo, I forgive you a long time ago because Jesus forgave you my sins. So when he said that, I was uh, speechless. And I started thinking, you know, what, what am I doing with my life? Here's a man who'll never know the joys of having a family, being and having you know, a vacation, a job, and driving a car, all these things. But he was joyful. And so God used Kim Su to, uh, to change my life. And I said, Lord, tell me what you want me to do. And that's when I got up in my heart. I uh, found out the initially, at the beginning, quote was helped by Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision. And so I did some research, and after many interviews, uh, they hired me as vice president of marketing operation in outside of Seattle, Washington. That's how I got into nonprofit uh, about 19 years ago. Now, as we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, you contracted polio when you were uh, just a year old in Korea, and that left you unable to walk on your own. You now are able to navigate with uh, with crutches. Did your disability ever uh, limit your expectations in terms of what you thought you were able to do in the future? And how did you see God's hand at work in giving you the opportunity to be a voice for other handicapped children from uh, elsewhere around the globe? You know, it's uh, I'm very thankful to be in the United States because uh, uh, compared to any other place, it is much uh, more easier to get around. And you have curbs, uh, you can walk, and you have elevators, and you have easy parking as long as the handicapped spots are open. But I'm very thankful to be here. But even with that, it's very it's challenging to get around uh, with crutches and leg braces and uh, now my wife helps me quite a bit. Sometimes I have to use a wheelchair now as I get older. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just want uh, for my dream. And uh, But it's it's never easy. Uh, but I have faith that uh, that God will uh, has purpose in my life. And particularly after I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, uh, my, one of my life verses uh, in Ephesians 2.10, where it says, We are God's workmanship, prayed in Christ Jesus, to do good works which you prepare in advance for us to do. So now I have purpose. And because of that, uh, I know whatever God calls me to do something, uh, he will provide a way and he will be successful. And then I will give him the glory because I know it's not me doing it. You write that I believe God has called me to be the voice of millions of children who desperately need life-changing medicines. He has given me these experiences, even polio, to prepare me to be used by him. I'm not bitter because I know God is using this for his glory. One day in heaven, I will walk and run again. Meanwhile, if I can prevent a child from suffering, I will. Looking back, do you see God's hand on your life, even in those early days and through those uh, difficult and unfortunate circumstances? Uh, yes, I do, because sometimes you have to actually experience it yourself to really be able to empathize and know what it's like. And, you know, in developing countries, people with disabilities, children, they're viewed as worse than animals. They don't have any value. And, I, you know, two years ago, I was in India uh, with Rotary National to provide uh, polio vaccinations. And even doctors refer to uh, children and people with polio as uh, crawlers because they crawl on the ground. And that's so demeaning to say, hey, you're a crawler because you have to crawl on the ground. I know what it feels like because I, that's what I did. I crawled because mm-hmm. I didn't have crutches and leg braces. I know the challenges. I know what it feels like to be totally ostracized. 
I know it's the, the difficulty uh, having a child with disabilities, either at, you know, by birth, by, by disease, or by accident, has on the family. So that's why, uh, especially looking at MAP, the medicines that we get, you can prevent uh, sickness. You can prevent somebody losing a leg because uh, their foot got infected because of uh, stepping on a nail. I met a girl. Uh, in Cambodia, who lost her leg, believe it or not, because she stepped on a nail, and she didn't, they didn't have any, they couldn't afford to go to the doctor with antibiotics. The, by the time she had to go, she lost her leg. That's too late. Day because the treatment set in. So these medicines are really life-saving, uh, antibiotics, but also chronic diseases like hypertension, cardiovascular. You know, my wife, uh, she's on hypertension medicine. If she doesn't get this medicine, uh, and sometimes we have challenges in the United States getting it, you will not live very long. So that's why I feel what they are going through. I know what it's like. And, you know, as I get older, I get more and more pain. But I'm fortunate because I have, you know, help. I have uh, good health care. I have, uh, you know, the things that will help me to offset my pain. But people in developing countries around the world, they don't have that. Yeah. That's yeah. why God reminds me to do something for the people. And just like Paul, when he prayed to take the stone on the other side, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Uh, and so um, that's what that's, uh, I feel like. That's why I'm so passionate about helping the children and, and people in developing countries. And making a difference in the world. Well, once again, the title of the book, The Crutch of Success, From Polio to Purpose, Bringing Health and Hope to the World. Very inspiring. Uh, Steve Sterling, thank you for your leadership with uh, MAP, and thank you for talking with us today. Well, thank you, Georgine. I really appreciate you, and God bless you. Real pleasure. You as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in this hour, we're going to talk with Michelle Malkin, her latest book, Open Borders, Inc., Who's Funding America's Destruction is the subject of our conversation. And of course, we're going to invite you to join us. That's coming up tomorrow night when an evening with Michelle Malkin is uh, going to be uh, right here in the Portland area. By the way, for more information and to uh, register, you can go to kpdq.com. Michelle will be speaking from 7 to 9. Her books will be available. In fact, the cost of admission covers the cost of the book. There's also a VIP opportunity. You can find all the important details once again at uh, kpdq.com. Well, the question on everyone's mind in Washington and across the country is, will President Trump be impeached? Well, everything you need to know about that process is the subject of this segment. Uh, It's important to know to impeach or not to impeach is the question that Democrats are ferociously debating among themselves. And I think the majority of them now have crossed over to, yes, we should impeach the president. But there is a process. And interestingly enough, the Speaker of the House has not yet taken an up or down vote, uh, as is the protocol for moving toward impeachment. But the most important point to understand about impeachment is that it is not a legal proceeding like a federal criminal prosecution. Members of Congress should be wary of abusing the impeachment authority in such a manner because it could imperil the stability of the constitutional structure of our government, and that's an issue that's always of concern. That was the case when uh, Bill Clinton was impeached and uh, in every other case where that has been the case, and of course there have been very few of them. To impeach or not impeach. Well, what exactly is impeachment if it is not a legal a question as one would find in the court system. How hard would it be to impeach the president and actually remove him from office, which is something else altogether? Well, the average American, understandably, isn't an expert on impeachment. It doesn't happen often. Only two presidents have been impeached by the House. Andrew Johnson in 1868, most of us weren't here then, and Bill Clinton in 1999, and quite frankly, most of you probably weren't here then either. Neither man lost his job. 
The other day, someone who isn't a lawyer asked if President Trump would go to prison if he were impeached. The question has taken on new prominence since House Speaker Nancy Pelosi reportedly told senior House Democrats on Tuesday that I don't want to see him impeached. I want to see him in prison, according to Politico. Well, she knows that impeachment could not result in imprisonment of the president. Her wish apparently is to lock him up after he leaves office, preferably after being defeated for reelection next year, which is somewhat clouded by the proceedings that Democrats have announced they hope to complete by Christmas. Well, impeachment is complicated and it takes time. Parliamentary democracies aren't quickly removed, uh, uh, quick rather, to remove a prime minister when a majority of lawmakers cast a vote of no confidence in the leader. But in the U.S., the impeachment process is a much tougher task to accomplish. With so much speculation about impeachment in the news, it might be a good idea to create a primer primer on the process. Um, So we'll begin with, um, well, what is impeachment? It has nothing to do with the criminal prosecutions carried out by U.S. Justice Departments or for violations of federal law, although such criminal violations may form a basis for impeachment. Instead, as outlined in the Guide to Constitution that was put together by the Heritage Foundation, impeachment is the process set out in Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution for Congress to remove from office the president, the vice president, and all civil officers of the United States for treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, they aren't uh, specifically defined, so they have been redefined, misapplied, and so on over the years. There's also a second process that applies only to the president. The 25th Amendment provides for the temporary transfer of the powers of the presidency to the vice president if a president is unable to discharge the duties of his office, such as due to a physical or other disability. Under Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution, the House of Representatives has the sole power of impeachment. In other words, only the House can pass a resolution of impeachment alleging that a president has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Such a resolution, which requires only a simple majority vote, is similar to a criminal indictment by a grand jury. It's, uh, it is an unproven list of charges that a president has engaged in actions that warrant his impeachment. If a majority of Americans do not believe that the impeachment of a president is warranted because no actual wrongdoing has occurred, there seems little doubt that members of Congress pushing impeachment will be unsuccessful and may suffer damaging political consequences at the ballot box. If the House passes an impeachment resolution, then the process moves to the Senate. Under Article 1, Section 3 of the Constitution, the Senate has the sole power to try all impeachments. The Senate, in essence, becomes a trial court with all the senators sitting as the judge and jury. Based on historic practice, members of the House can act as prosecutors. Now, it's important to note that it is entirely up to the Senate to decide whether to hold trial. There's no obligation under the Constitution to do so. That means that even if the Democrat majority in the House votes to impeach the president, the Republican majority in the Senate could decide to not even consider removing him from office. House Democrats opposing uh, impeaching the president say there's no point in passing an impeachment resolution because it would most likely be dead on arrival in the Senate. Well, how does the impeachment trial work? Well, if the Senate decides to hold an impeachment trial, the Constitution says the chief justice of the Supreme Court shall preside over the proceedings. It takes a vote of two thirds of the members present in the Senate to convict any federal officer or official subject to an impeachment charge, including the president. The two thirds vote to convict means that 67 votes are needed in the 100 member Senate to remove the president and other federal officers from office. This is a very high hurdle that's probably impossible to leap over in the case of President Trump. 
Now, Democrats and independents allied with uh, them hold only 47 seats in the Senate, meaning that even if they all voted to convict the president, they'd also need the votes of 20 Republican senators. Not a single GOP senator has called for Trump to be impeached so far. And the charges of 20 jumping on uh, aboard the impeachment bandwagon is slim to none. As mentioned earlier, if a federal officer is convicted by the Senate, it's not a criminal conviction. The Constitution states that impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. In other words, a federal official can be removed from office. He or she can also be banned from holding any other federal office in the future. So what happens when a president or other official is removed? On the other hand, conviction does not bar the removed official from being liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. But the impeachment itself does not accomplish all of that. So a federal official who is impeached, convicted and removed from office, such as a federal judge or the president of the United States, can be criminally prosecuted if he's violated a federal law, such as accepting bribes or engaging in treason. How is impeachment different from trial in court? Well, the most important point to understand about impeachment is that it's not a legal proceeding like a federal criminal prosecution. And none of the procedural rules that apply to both criminal and civil trials in the federal Federal courts apply. Other than the constitutional division of labor between the House and the Senate, the directive that the chief justice presides when it's uh, uh, president being impeached and the requirement of a two thirds vote to convict, it's entirely up to the House and the Senate to set the rules for how to proceed with impeachment. It's also entirely up to Congress to determine what it considers treason, bribery or other crimes, high crimes and misdemeanors that constitute grounds for impeachment. The Supreme Court in a 1993 case called Nixon versus the United States, a case involving a federal judge named Nixon, not former President Richard Nixon, held that impeachment process is a political question. It's not an issue that is uh, reviewable by or within the jurisdiction of the federal courts. So how has impeachment been used in the past? Again, it's only happened twice. During the course of our history, the House of Representatives has impeached 19 federal officials, 15 judges, including Associate Justice of the Supreme Court Samuel Chase, one cabinet member, one U.S. Senator and President Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, according to a 2015 report by the Congressional Research Service. Well, many people mistakenly believe that President Nixon was impeached. In fact, Nixon resigned in 74 after the House Judiciary Committee recommended impeachment, but before a resolution of impeachment could be voted on by the House. Well, both President Andrew Johnson and President Clinton were acquitted in their impeachment trials held in the Senate. Of the 14 other impeachment uh, trials held, only eight resulted in conviction. All of federal judges the last such trial was uh, the former federal judge Thomas Porteous Jr. He was convicted in 2010 by the Senate on four articles of impeachment, including reviewing cash and favors from lawyers who were practicing before him and lying to the FBI and Senate during his nomination. Well, we'll continue to take a look at what impeachment looks like and what will be required in the case of a president as this developing story continues. Up next, we're going to talk with Michelle Malkin. Her book is Open Borders, Inc., Who's Funding America's Destruction? She's coming to Portland tomorrow night. We'll give you all the important details when she joins us in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, my next guest says, follow the money and find the truth. That's Michelle Malkin's journalist mantra. And in her stunning new book, Open Borders, Inc., Who's Funding America's Destruction? She puts it to work with a shocking deep-dive dossier of the funders and the foot soldiers of immigration anarchy right here and all around the globe. And in the name of compassion, but driven by financial profit, you've got global elite, Silicon Valley, and the radical left are all conspiring to undo the rule of law, subvert our homeland security, shut down free speech, make gobs of money off the backs of illegal aliens, refugees, and low-wage guest workers. Politicians want cheap votes and cheap labor. Church leaders want pew fillers and collection plate donors. Social justice militants working with corporate America want to silence free speech. They deem hateful while raking in tens of millions of dollars. Now, we see something is going on. We're frustrated by the failure of our immigration system and leaders to apply the laws that already exist. But what's behind it all? You're going to find it in Michelle Malkin's book. Now, our conversation is going to be relatively short, but the good news is she's going to be in Portland tomorrow night, and you're invited to join us. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a few moments. But uh, before we do, I'm delighted to introduce Michelle Malkin. She is a wife, a mother, American conservative blogger, syndicated columnist, political political commentator, and a New York Times best-selling author. She joins us to talk about her latest book, <laughs> Open Borders, Inc., Who's Funding America's Destruction? Michelle Malkin, welcome back. We're looking forward to having you here tomorrow, but grateful to have you here online today. Thank you, Georgine. I am very excited about being there October 1st tomorrow at the Shiloh in Portland Airport from 7 to 9. I'm excited to be able to enlighten, especially members of the community, in Portland and the Pacific Northwest, who have had to suffer the the consequences of this conspiracy of Open Borders, Inc., namely, of course, the war on our immigration and customs agent officials, which is largely waged by anarchist groups that have a long history in the Pacific Northwest. You begin, the, the book is divided into two parts, foreign enemies, domestic enemies, and you begin with a chapter, Make America Disappear Agenda, that there is a coordinated effort, and you um, you begin with quotes from uh, Keith Ellison, billionaire George Soros, Pope Francis, that are shocking in nature. Is there a coordinated campaign to make America disappear in that it no longer is a sovereign nation with defined borders? Yes, absolutely. And the quote from Keith Ellison, who's currently the Attorney General of Minnesota, is on a shirt that, that read, Yo no creo en frontera. And, and translated from Spanish, it means, I don't believe in borders. Now, I just want to compare that, of course, to the propaganda campaign of the New York Times op-ed page and the fact checker who asserted as fact that Democrats do not believe in open borders. Well, it can't get any more stark and explicit than Keith Ellison's declaration, and he is the top law enforcement official in the state of Minnesota. That is a state where Ivan Omar has called on the United Nations to take over our southern border, um, and many of the organizations that support the agenda of Keith Ellison and Ilan Omar are directly or indirectly subsidized by the Hungarian billionaire George Soros. One of the things that we've been confronted with with as Americans looking on to the disaster on our southern border are the caravans. We're led to believe that this is a spontaneous or organic move northward. But your book points out that that is not the case. 
No, that is not the case. And George Soros is just one of the many left-wing philanthropists that helps prop up what I describe as an illegal alien shelter network that stretches from Central America through Mexico and into the interior of the country. And I think it's especially important that people understand that in the Pacific Northwest, there are many far-left progressive churches that support this idea of turning a sovereign nation into a sanctuary one. And it's not just illegal immigration. The refugee resettlement racket, which is a primary agenda item of the United Nations, is subsidized by transnational organizations as well as American taxpayers to the tune of billions of dollars that are then funneled to religious nonprofit organizations, the U.S. Catholic of Conference, uh, the Conference of Bishops, uh, Lutheran Immigrant and Refugee Services, and at least seven others. Um, over the course of, of the running of this program over the last 30 years that reap all this money and then never have to be held accountable if anything goes wrong. And Georgine, plenty of things do go wrong. Oh, absolutely. What advantage do they see to eliminating the borders of the United States altogether in making America disappear? What is the advantage, aside from financial? Are there other reasons that they would point to as why this is in our best interest? It's all about control. And I quote from George Soros's book, The Case for Global Governance. And he has spoken about this agenda around the world in speeches and lectures uh, as head of the Open Society Foundation. He believes that sovereignty is, quote, an obstacle to global governments. And, and the idea is that you have uh, individuals like him, very wealthy, who wield an enormous amount of power over the rest of the world through the United Nations and the European Union. This is why it was incredibly important that our commander-in-chief, President Trump, stood at the U.N. at the General Assembly last week and made a very vigorous and muscular defense of American sovereignty. Which was uh, not covered by the mainstream media because they were distracted by other events, and happily so. Yeah, good point. And, and how is that? Again, it's not by accident that many of these Soros-funded groups in, in America uh, that have backed uh, domestic disruption and agitation through an impeachment movement that has existed since at least the Bush administration uh, distracted the world and Americans from that important speech by ratcheting up and cranking up the impeachment machine again. And we're talking about Open Borders, Inc. It's Michelle Malkin's latest book, Who's Funding America's Destruction? We can see what's happening uh, from the outside, but she goes deep into what's happening and the figures who are um, funding and benefiting by this uh, this whole affair. Now, you have an opportunity to spend an evening with Michelle Malkin. That's coming up tomorrow night at Shiloh in Portland Airport, Northwest uh, Airport Way, 7 o'clock p.m. to 9 o'clock. Uh, there's a VIP opportunity. You can meet and talk with her ahead of the event. The doors will open at 530 as well as general admission. And that admission includes uh, the cost of the book. Doors, doors will open at 630. Additional books will be available for sale as well. Let me encourage you to go to kpdq.com now and make sure that you are signed up to be a part of this fascinating event where you'll have the opportunity to hear in much greater detail what is in this 500-page book, 12 appendices, maps tracing tens of billions of dollars spent or received by 400-plus nonprofits, religious charities, legal organizations, political lobbying groups, businesses, and much, much more. Now, as I mentioned, the first half of the book really focuses on foreign enemies, and I think that's the right word to describe those who are attempting to undermine the sovereignty of the United States. Uh, And one of the things that you uh, focus on in that chapter is refugee resettlement. I think more than anything else, people that that sort of tugs on their heartstrings, there are people who have genuine legal reason to attempt to come to the United States. They are seeking refuge. 
But the system has been taken advantage of, and certainly there are those who profit uh, by a misreading of what the law actually says. Talk a bit about refugee resettlement and efforts in the White House to um, uh, uh, prevent those who want to come to the nation under false pretenses as refugees. One of the proudest gifts that we've given the world is our asylum and uh, refugee uh, system here. And we have been very selective since the beginning of this program in allowing some 3 million refugees to come into the country who have legitimate claims of political, ethnic, and religious persecution. But the far left, Soros among them, the Catholic Church, Lutherans, um, many other denominations for that matter, are making money off of it under the guise of, of compassion. They've completely perverted the, the legacy of the Statue of Liberty and the Emma Lazarus poem, which is often invoked by the refugee resettlement racketeers. And what I think people need to understand the most is that there are many malefactors across the world who are coaching people to come into this country, make false claims of asylum, because they know that they can abuse all sorts of loopholes in the system to be able to be released uh, after they set soil on soil, set foot on soil here. And um, I go into detail about how this gamesmanship has harmed Americans. Um, we have at least 60 refugee hotties. I profile them in, a, in a, an important appendix in the book, Georgine that have made false claims of, of persecution, uh, that have escaped their home countries only to come here and wage jihad against the very people who opened up their arms to them. Again, we're talking about the book Open Borders, Inc., Who's Funding America's Destruction? It is the most thorough, comprehensive book on the subject. And uh, you can avail yourself of a copy tomorrow night if you join us for an evening with Michelle Malkin. Well, she'll go into greater detail. Again, that's tomorrow night, 7 o'clock p.m., Shiloh in Portland Airport on Northwest Airport Way. Go to kpdq.com for all the important details and to register to attend this event. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation with Michelle Malkin, again, author of Open Borders, Inc. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're continuing our conversation with Michelle Malkin. Her latest book, Open Borders, Inc., Who's Funding America's Destruction? Now, she names names. She gives numbers, facts, research, maps, data. It's all here. And she goes uh, deep with a dossier that will help us better understand the challenges we face in preserving and protecting our liberty. She's going to be here in the Portland area tomorrow night. We hope you will join us. This is going to be a significant event. For those of us who want to better understand what's happening, who's responsible and what we can do about it, the book not only exposes what's happening, but also gives us an opportunity uh, in the conclusion uh, for border defenders to uh, providing an action plan. Well, let's talk, Michelle, about the second half of the book in which you focus on uh, those domestic enemies, um, this effort to abolish ICE, Antifa, uh, sanctuary anarchists, and so on. I noted in Chicago, for example, police departments there have been advised that officers aren't supposed to cooperate with the Department of Homeland Security as just the latest example of efforts to abolish or at least cripple ICE. Talk a bit about it. Yes, it is crippling. And it's not just an advisement. It's an actual order from the Chicago far-left mayor, Lori Lightfoot, uh, that all employees must actively obstruct any communication with federal immigration and customs agents. That's the sanctuary safe spaces for criminal aliens that have spread across the country. There are now 564 such jurisdictions 
cities, counties, and states. And uh, you can see the, the fundamental transformation that's going on here from a sovereign country into a sanctuary space uh, that has uh, become a, a no-go zone for patriots and law-abiding citizens and families. This is of a special resonance uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, there, you've got a mayor, Mayor Ted Wheeler in Portland, who had ordered a hands-off policy in support of Antifa and abolish ICE radicals in June 2018, where they took over. It was a five-week siege at the ICE office in southwest Portland. There was violence. Uh, there were health hazards, and that Occupy-style tactic, these these camp camping outs, um, is just an evolution of the Soros resistance movement that we've seen for the last 15, 20 years, and it cannot go unopposed. No, it cannot. Uh, once again, I want to mention in Open Borders, Inc., she offers an appendix with the top 10 refugee destinations by state, metro area. Uh, and so on. She also provides an Antifa violence timeline, abolish ICE va- uh, vigilantism, and much, much more. Now, one of the sources of information that is a go-to, particularly from the left and those who support open borders, is the Southern Poverty Law Center. That is the the uh, organization that oftentimes def- defines hate according to their ideological differences. You write about the Southern Poverty Law Center. Talk about it in the context of immigration and the role that they are playing here domestically. Yeah, um, since at least 2006 or 2007, I've been targeted by the SPLC, named as an agent of hate simply for supporting and upholding and talking about uh, the need for strict immigration enforcement to defend our sovereignty. But I'm not alone. The list of so-called designated hate agents probably numbers into the hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands. And I half joke that it would be much more efficient if they told us who they didn't consider a quote-unquote hate agent on the right. Uh, And religious groups, pro-life groups, immigration Mm -hmm. enforcement hawks um, have all been roped into this. And it's a very efficient and ruthless machine because now the SPLC uh, has been welcomed into the inner chambers of every Silicon Valley company from Amazon to Google uh, to Twitter and Facebook. Unchallenged. Yes. Uh, yes. Well, for the most part. And, but the, the hope is, of course, and I uh, report on this, there are several people who have been defamed and smeared by the SPLC who are fighting That's back. That's true. Uh, many, many of them now suing, and there actually have been a number of successful defamation suits. I'll tell you how ridiculous it is, Georgine. Of course, I'm the child of legal immigrants from the Philippines myself. That doesn't stop them from calling me a white supremacist. Ben Carson was put on this list. Ayan Hersey Ali. Um, and uh, and they won't stop unless there are uh, legal consequences for their actions. You write about the role of Hollywood and the hypocrisy among celebrities. What role are they playing in this immigration debacle? Well, they are definitely part of the funding mechanism of Open Borders, Inc. While they live ensconced in uh, multi-million dollar mansions with high gates or walls and armed 24 24- security, uh, they are also funding groups like uh, the Soros-backed American Civil Liberties Union, um, another group called RACIS that is uh, down in the Southwest that is creating magnets to bring people across the country illegally. And uh, for example, Chrissy Teigen and John Legend, a notorious uh, Hollywood couple that uh, is most vocal about their hatred of Donald Trump, poured more than a million dollars into the ACLU uh, to back cases brought on behalf of illegal aliens all the way up to the Supreme Court. Mm. 
Well, the media, it, it, journalism is no longer uh, the hallmark of the, the liberal media in general. You make the point that they genuinely hate America. I think people have tried to give them the benefit of the doubt. It certainly appears to be the case that, uh, that they hate America. But you go so far as to make the point and to demonstrate that that is, in fact, the core value that motivates them in their reporting. Yeah, and I think that uh, this shows you the psychological projection they have because they line, align themselves with groups like the SPLC that nonstop uh, accuse uh, people like me and, and many people on the, on the conservative side of the aisle and the right and Republicans and pr- certainly President Trump accuse us of hatred when really what motivates us, what motivates me specifically, of course, is love of country and the idea that um, I've always cherished the fact that it is a privilege, it is a sacred blessing to be able to make life in America and to be able to call myself an American. And as I've traveled across the country, I've held Stand With Ice rallies and supported the men and women, 20,000 of them who defend and uh, enforce our immigration laws on the interior, and I've met people from all backgrounds. Uh, Georgine, in fact, I was at the Tacoma, Washington ICE Center that was targeted by an Antifa radical and met people who were naturalized Americans from Africa, Europe, uh, Asia, and, um, you know, most inspired by a Jewish immigrant from Germany who stood up and said, how dare people call me a Nazi uh, when his own family had escaped the concentration camp Mm. simply because he is proud to be an American. We're talking with Michelle Malkin. She's going to be in Portland tomorrow night, and you have the opportunity to spend an evening with Michelle Malkin. That's 7 o'clock p.m. at Shiloh Winds Portland Airport. Uh, you have an opportunity for a VIP pre-event. That's at 5.30, cost of $75, general admission that includes book, $30. The doors open at 6.30, and let me encourage you to go to kpdq.com for all the details and to register. Now, the book doesn't just expose the nature of the problem and the seriousness of Uh, the challenge we face. But in the conclusion of the book, you offer an action plan for border defenders because we can wring our hands and be frustrated. But unless there's something constructive we can do, uh, then that's all we are is frustrated. Uh, What are some of the things that border defenders uh, can and should do to resist, if you will? So some of of the steps are very easy and small, and I think once you start small, then, um, you know, you can take more significant action. And the first thing that people should do is get informed about where the the organizations are uh, that are propping up Open Borders, Inc., and then stop giving them your money. If you find out that your diocese, for example, is pouring money uh, into funds that are are constructing these shelters in, in Central America, Stop giving them your money. If you uh, realize that you're part of a a sanctuary church that is brazenly breaking the laws against aiding and abetting and harboring and sheltering illegal immigration, stop going. Find uh, somewhere else that uh, reflects your values. And then we need um, action at the local level. President Trump can't do this himself. There are many open borders district attorneys and police chiefs that are actively subverting the law. I believe that they are are guilty of sedition. Uh, There's all sorts of impeachment talk in Washington, D.C., but you know what? Citizens in their own neighborhoods and cities and counties can wage impeachment campaigns, for example, against open borders judges uh, who are doing things that are very destructive and obstructing immigration law unilaterally. Um, And uh, then, of course, you know, if you're willing to, to take the kinds of actions that I have over the last three weeks, and get out there and show your public support for the men and the women on the front lines. I've been organizing these Stand With Ice rallies, but you don't need me. Start your own. 
Well, Michelle Malkin, we are so excited that you'll be here in Portland tomorrow night as part of your book tour for Open Borders, Inc. And I want to encourage our listeners to join us. I'll look forward to seeing you. And thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Jordan. I appreciate it. Appreciate it very much. Once again, an evening with Michelle uh, Malkin. She'll be at Shiloh Inns Portland Airport on Northwest Airport Way tomorrow night, 7 o'clock p.m. All the details at kpdq.com. The doors will open for those who uh, sign up for the VIP pre-event at 5.30. General admission is $30. That includes a book, and doors will open for general admission at 6.30. And additional books will be available at the event only at a reduced price. Again, an evening with Michelle Malkin. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. We were talking with Michelle Malkin regarding her latest book, Open Borders, Inc., about which she'll be talking at some great length and detail when she joins us tomorrow night at Shiloh Inn here in Portland. Uh, in Hong Kong, they're... Uh, on the edge of an anniversary celebration tomorrow, and things are not looking um, uh, well for the residents of Hong Kong as security is beefing up there. The people, they've protested for greater freedoms for years, so that's not new, but the latest demonstrations represent a pretty historic outcry. You might recall back in 1997, it was July 1st, um, uh, it marked the anniversary of Hong Kong's return to it as a territory of China after 150 years of British colonial rule. This was a challenging day for the residents of Hong Kong. I've been there several times, and it is and was a beautiful city. Beginning in 2003, it's also the date of annual protests by Hong Kong residents calling for increased democracy there. The demonstrations have been generally peaceful until this summer, when a group of protesters stormed the Legislative Council Parliament building. As you might recall, they were angry at what they saw as China's most recent and most egregious effort to weaken the freedoms of Hong Kongers. Well, in April, Carrie Lam, the chief executive of Hong Kong, had introduced a bill that would allow Hong Kong to detain and transfer people wanted in countries and territories with which Hong Kong has uh, no formal extradition agreement, including mainland China and Taiwan. Well, the bill, she argued, was necessary to send a Hong Kong man wanted for murder to trial in Taiwan. It specifically included exemptions for political crimes, religious crimes, and certain white-collar crimes. Well, the public there, however, saw the bill as a thinly-veiled ploy to give China additional power over the semi-autonomous territory. The bill has uh, kicked off a nearly four-month protest that has, at times had as many as 1.7 million participants, which is a remarkable number, for a city of 7.4 million. So a significant slice of the population. Well, even as the extradition bill was suspended by Lam and then ultimately withdrawn altogether, the protests against China's overreach has continued, with turnout um, spiking uh, leading up to another anniversary, that is National Day. That's tomorrow. October 1st marks the 70th anniversary commemoration of the founding of the People's Republic of China a member of which Hong Kong has desperately not wanted to be a part of. Well, aside from the the bill itself, four of the protesters, five main demands remain Lamb's resignation, an inquiry into police brutality, the release of those arrested, and greater democratic freedoms, none of which 
uh, Chairman Xi is likely to grant. Well, many Hong Kong Christians, while comprising less than 12 percent of the population, have played a pretty prominent role in the protests, marching, singing hymns, holding prayer circles, providing food and shelter to other demonstrators. The Jesus People song, Sing Hallelujah to the, the Lord, became an unexpected anthem of the protests as participants sang the tune to calm confrontations with police. Well, for Christians there, the Chinese Communist Party may be the greatest uh, existential threat to the Hong Kong church. In the past few years, uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping has systematically cracked down on Christianity in the mainland, raising churches, and that's with a Z, arresting leaders, ejecting foreign missionaries. The persecution has extended to other faiths, with Xi's government detaining as many as one million Muslim Uyghur people in re-education camps in the country's western region. Well, under the Hong Kong Basic Law, the constitution agreed to by the United Kingdom and the People's Republic of China when the former handed uh, Hong Kong back to the latter, none of these things should happen in Hong Kong, at least not until 2047, when the Basic Law and Hong Kong's semi-autonomy expire. So this was not intended to be perfect or permanent, rather. But in the 22 years since Hong Kong became part of China again, the communist country has shown a willingness to push the boundaries of that agreement. And who's going to push back if not Hong Kong residents? Well, the legislature there is stacked with pro-Beijing lawmakers. The supposedly free press is regularly censored. On multiple occasions, China has pushed for historic curriculum in Hong Kong schools that, among other things, erases significant events from Mao Zedong's disastrous Great Leap Forward campaign and the Tiananmen Square massacre, which they still teach in Hong Kong. Electoral reforms proposed there by Beijing, which gave the Chinese Communist Party more influence over who was eligible to run for office in Hong Kong, sparked the umbrella movement back in 2014. And even without an extradition agreement, China has already shown its willingness to abduct and detain Hong Kong residents that are angered and have angered communist leaders, most notably five Hong Kong booksellers who sold books critical of Chinese leadership. Well, for Chinese Christians within the diaspora, the threat from the mainland is no less real. Those born in the 1930s and 40s grew up as Mao Zedong and his staunchly atheist Communist Party came to power. And many Chinese Christians who now live abroad fled after the establishment of the People's Republic of China, with Hong Kong often being one of their first stops for the freedom to practice their faith. Well, today, Hong Kong remains the safest haven on the border of mainland China for missionaries and ministries where they go to purchase supplies, attend trainings, post on social media, or simply escape the ever-watchful Chinese authorities known for monitoring communications and the movements of foreigners. Hong Kong often serves as the staging ground or headquarters for missions efforts into the mainland. As China attempts to exert greater control over Hong Kong, their work is even more at risk. Well, of course, no protest movement is perfect in its motivations and actions. Protesters there, they've been criticized for shutting down the city's bustling international airport on multiple occasions, damaging government buildings, scuffling with police and harming the tourism industry. But even flawed protest movements can provide a prophetic voice, bringing to light the forces threatened by a people who are free and empowered. The demonstrators' persistent efforts have highlighted police brutality. They've incurred the aggression of the triads, organized crime syndicates there in Hong Kong. Protest leaders, including Joshua Wong, a Christian activist who rose to prominence during the 2014 protests, and anti-Beijing lawmakers have been arrested. The Chinese military is assuming security forces on the Hong Kong border, amassing them rather, as a stark warning to the protesters about the possible consequence of their actions. And in recent years, the international community has been more inclined to overlook China's curbing of 
human and political rights within the mainland and its territories in hopes of currying favor with the economic and military superpower. But with those protests, it's become much harder to ignore the fact that China ranks 135th on the Human Freedom Index. Activists from Hong Kong have recently testified before the United Nations Human Rights Council and the U.S. Congress. Well, at this point, no one knows how the story unfolding in Hong Kong is going to end. Some could even argue that their efforts are futile, given that in a short 28 years, Hong Kongers will have lost all claim to their existing freedoms and political systems. The many thriving churches and ministries in Hong Kong may be forced to close their doors or go underground after 2047. But for now, they continue to raise their voices, they continue to march, and the spotlight continues to shine into some of the darkest corners of Chinese rule. So as you're pl- praying for the persecuted church in mainland China, be sure to remember those in Hong Kong who are protesting and hoping to maintain for themselves some semblance of freedom until in 2047, as agreed, all may be lost. Well, tomorrow on the program, you're going to hear the best of the Georgine Rice Show. But on Wednesday, we're going to talk with Leighton Ford. He has written a memoir, A Life of Listening, Discerning God's Voice and Discovering Our Own, a memoir. We're also going to talk with Samuel Hakim with Redeeming the Nations. They are doing significant work uh, among Muslims in the Middle East. We'll talk with him about that and get his uh, forecast on what's happening in Islam. On Thursday, we'll talk with Michael Barone. It's actually kind of tentative. We're still uh, working to confirm that, but we're hoping to talk with uh, Michael Barone on his latest book, How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. The book is published by Encounter, and he, we hope, will join us on Thursday. And then on Friday, we'll lighten up as is usually the case. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Justin Mansfield and Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.